0: I'm always nervous before I sit down and record one of these, but never so much so when it's a game or a movie or whatever that I really love. And I'm not sure I have much to talk about. I'm going to do my best here and just discuss what I have to share with you guys. And I hope you'll find that enjoyable because that's kind of what I always do is try to do the best that I can. Paper Mario 2, I'm not going to call it Paper Mario the Thousand Year Door because it's a lot quicker and easier to just say Paper Mario 2 is one of my favorite games of all time. I'm pretty sure it qualifies in the top 10. If not, it definitely qualifies in the top 30, a.k.a. the absolute best of the best category. I love this game. I will hopefully be playing it soon uh, in the coming year, in 2018, when uh, we go to the Mario RPG pseudo-lore run, so get hyped for that if you're interested. (sighs) I was one of those morons who said that a Mario RPG would never work. Um, and I was a moron for saying it. I was like, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. Then Super Mario RPG came out, and then I called myself a moron. And I've been calling myself a moron for that ever since. In fact, I'm pretty sure this is not the first time I've said this on my show. Paper Mario. Okay, (laughs) please don't hate me, but there are three games that pretty much sold my N64 for me. Star Fox 64, Ocarina of Time, And Paper Mario. There are other good N64 games. Don't mistake me for saying that there aren't. But those three games weren't just games that I loved. They were games that I replayed. Over and over and over again. And they never got boring. All three of them. While some of the other games I would, you know, basically 100% of them put aside, like Mario 64, for example. Or I would play through once and then had to return it because I didn't actually own it, like Majora's Mask. I replayed those games ad ad nauseum. Just over and over and over. <clears throat> Especially Paper Mario. Because it was one of the most tightly designed RPGs I'd seen in a long time. Now, I've I won't I won't go too much into that here. What I will talk about is how this game is basically everything I loved about Paper Mario done better. This is a clear example of TIE Fighter effect, or if you prefer, Mega Man 2 effect. In other words, the sequel that is just way better than the original in basically every way. And the first thing I want to talk about is the leveling system. Some of you may be aware of the fact that I actually have my own pen and paper system I call the magasean rule set, which I use for my own Primus campaigns as well as basically anything else I run nowadays. And that rule set... I obviously did a lot of work trying to balance it and make it interesting and fun and blah, blah, blah. But a lot of the balancing math all came back to these games, Paper Mario 1 and Paper Mario 2. These are surprisingly well-balanced games. It's hard to properly explain it if you don't really know a lot about game design theory. So I'm just going to try and put it to you in very simple layman's terms. The best-designed RPG's leveling system and curve is one such that if you walk through the story, don't skip any fights, don't go out of your way to fight any additional stuff, you'll be at pretty much the exactly perfect power level for whatever you're fighting for it to be a little bit challenging, but overall something that you can accomplish. That's pretty much the the, the ideal leveling curve right there. And in both Paper Mario and Paper Mario 2, with only a couple of exceptions, the leveling curve and difficulty curve are basically straight lines. There's no, there's no arcing or anything like that. It's just... It is brilliantly designed. One of the biggest ways it's designed is the variable experience you get for enemies. So you only need 100 experience to level, always, in Paper Mario 2. That's, that's all that's required. But if you get... <clears throat> any enemy group you fight gives you a certain amount of experience. Uh, Just to name an example right off the top of my head, if you fight a Goomba, and then a Koopa, and then another Goomba, you might get, for example, six experience. So there's six experience towards your total, 6% of a level, right? The thing is, every enemy in the game has a certain exp value for, like, its ideal level, and then once you are of a certain level above that, they start giving less experience until they only give one. And when I say one, I don't just mean one each, I mean one per encounter, When you get to the point where you have severely out-leveled things, which you can do, uh, although you don't if you're just playing normally, then every encounter that you are over-leveled for will only give you a single experience point. However, that is still valid and noteworthy because in Paper Mario 1, that wasn't true. At a certain point in time, they just gave you no experience. So after a certain point in time, encounters are basically just wasting your time. Here, even if you accidentally run into a lower level enemy, you'll still get something out of it. And the only way to effectively level grind to higher levels if you really want to try off any of the crazy tricks or make your way down through the 100 levels optional dungeon is to keep getting experience and usually just grinding off of lower enemies is one of the simpler and easier ways of doing that. Not the best by far, but certainly one of the other options you have available. So the level cap in Mario Paper Mario 2 is actually 99, I believe. It's very high. It's when you have 50 health, 50 FP, and 99 badge points, whatever that actually is. Getting to that is insane, but you're allowed to if you want to. Similarly, on top of this, the difficulty is is set up around low numbers. This is probably my favorite type of balancing math in an RPG. You start off with one attack power and zero defense, and most enemies have... One attack power and zero defense. In fact, the overwhelming majority of enemies for the first half of the game have zero defense. And then it becomes a thing when a given enemy actually has more than zero defense. Now You might be like, I don't quite understand. Let me make this very simple for you. If you have one defense and someone hits you with an attack power of one, you don't take damage because it cancels each other out. It's very simple, but it's, not, it's, it's extremely well balanced because all those numbers are brought down. You know, one attack power boost is a huge boost in overall power. That's why it costs six badges. Or in other words, to put this into perspective, if you have the power raise badge and you have leveled twice, you can raise your attack power by one. And that is a huge boost in your overall output. And if you're playing normally, most of the attack badges and defense badges... Well, I shouldn't say most of them, but there are several attack badges and defense badges that you'll just basically run into that are hard to miss in addition to the ones that are optional to help really boost your power. And that's another thing that's part of the leveling and difficulty curve, because too many people think it's just down to the balancing math of experience, damage, HP, etc. But it also comes down to what's in the way, what treasure, loot, equipment, etc. And in a game like this, it comes down to the badges. I suppose some of you don't know what I'm talking about, so just to go over this very quickly. In this system, you have badge points, which allows you to equip... Equipment, it, that's effectively what it is. Each of these equipments gives you either a passive effect, like increasing your attack power by one, or an active effect, which gives you a special ability. The special abilities things are one of the weaker points of the overall game design of Paper Mario 2, because a lot of the special ability badges, the active badges as I call them, aren't actually that great. Uh, some of them are, it's like sound cool and on offer plenty of options, if they actually worked as advertised or worked past, like, Chapter 2, which they don't. You know, the Sheep Stomp badge is a great example of that. However, there are still some good active badges, and most of the passive badges are good to one extent or another. This also lends itself towards one of the things I love most about really good, art, well-designed RPGs, and that's player customization. It's one of the things I love about FF6 to an extent. FF7, which I adore in, you know, the materia system, and... uh well, I'd say FF10, but that probably goes a little bit too far. But, you know, I like the ability to, to set up combos. I like the ability to set up, okay, I want to try this, but I want to move this guy over here, and maybe if I have him do this. And the badge system allows you to do that. There's a lot of variety in your tactics that you can approach in this game. And, in fact, there's an entire chapter dedicated towards basically forcing the player to understand and learn and adapt to varying your tactics up on a fight-to-fight basis. Which we'll talk about in a second. I also want to talk about the... So that's the leveling curve, the difficulty curve, the equipment that's in your way, the badge system, etc. There's also a badge shop, which sells several fairly nice utility badges that helps you to uh, progress through the game, especially if you're playing through it for the first time. And there's uh, specialty shops that show up every now and again. There's the star badge shop, which you can encounter basically right at the beginning of the game and start being able to turn your star bits into really powerful badges, you know, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things I like about this game, though, is that it's a Zelda game. Think about it for a second. The way you progress in Paper Mario 2 is you have what are effectively three different types of content that you make your way through. You've got what is effectively town content which is when you're, it doesn't have to be in town, but it's when you're talking with NPCs or advancing the story or maybe trying to learn about what's going on with this or, you know, whatever. It's basically the inter—the the barred social talking with people quiz stuff interactions, right? Which is a fairly large chunk of just about any RPG. Then you've got your dungeons. Now, the dungeons in this case are very Zelda-y. In fact, they're actually kind of a little bit Metroid-y as well. And it's no surprise. I mean, this is Intelligent Systems who's making this, and they do know what they're doing about certain things of game design, at least at this point in history. Um, So we have... (sighs) You gain new abilities, either in terms of the, the upgrades to your hammer or the upgrades to your boot or the companions you get, and those new abilities aren't just things that are used in combat. Those are things that allow you to progress and traverse the various dungeons and areas you're going through. In many cases, you'll run into something and you just can't proceed because you don't have the right tool for the job until you come back around through the dungeon later in order to process it. And then, of course, you have the combat. And there is, of course, a decent amount of combat. But most of it's skippable. I mentioned earlier if you just make your way straight line through things and don't dodge encounters, you'll be about the right level. But you can skip almost every encounter in this game if you're paying attention quick enough or know their patterns. Because enemies are active on the overworld. So, you know, in order for a Goomba to attack you, he has to wander over and actually physically run into you. So, you just go around him or jump over him or whatever, and you completely avoid that encounter. Kind of like a lot of Zelda games. Not all Zelda games, of course. And... The overall approach to puzzle design in the dungeons is extremely Zelda-y, in a good way. Um, rather than, okay, so you've got five rings here and two rings here, and you want to make sure the top ring is at the bottom. You know, that's a, that's a traditional puzzle, what I call a, a traditional or a classic puzzle. These are Zelda puzzles where, okay, so... There's a thing up there, and I need to make an ice block over here and then slide it over here in some direction. I need to figure out which direction to slide it in so that I can ride it over and then jump off at the right moment to get the thing. You know, that's more of a Zelda puzzle-y. And, and you know what it is. You know what a Zelda puzzle is. You've played Zelda games before. You have played Zelda games before, right? <laughs> and then, of course, you know, like I said, there's the combat. Which is more interactive, and I suppose I should talk about that. I haven't heard a lot of negativity towards the combat in the Paper Marios. I do want to say this. So this is what I like to call uh, active turn-based combat. Um, which I just realized sounds like ATB, but that's not what I mean by it. I swear. <laughs> active turn-based. No, the the, the point is... i got to come up with a new term for that. the t- The point is that it is turn-based combat. You select your actions, and then you go, and then your partner selects their actions, and then they go, and then the enemy selects their actions, and then they go. You know, right? It's chung, 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 chung. It's straight-up Dragon Quest. But, or F of 10, if you prefer. The difference is that when you, if you just, say, jump on enemy, you walk over and jump on them and do one damage and walk back. If, however, you go over, walk over, and as Mario lands on the enemy, you hit the jump button again, you jump a second time and do two damage. This is what I mean by the active turn-based combat, because you are actively participating in the combat. You can There's always something you can do to improve your attacks, there's always something you can do to block, and there's even the super block, which is basically parrying, where you do damage to someone as they're hitting you. And in addition to adding a skill element to the game and rewarding you for that skill element, it also makes it more engaged, basically. It's not full action. You don't literally have to walk over and jump up and aim the jump just right, and then stop on the enemy, which would be a full action RPG. But instead, you you select the menu option, and then you have the option of what is basically a a miniature quick-time event in order to make it better. I do like this system a lot. Let me make that clear. However, I do have to comment that I think I like it best in this game, the one we're talking about right here. In previous games, it was a little less... And not quite well designed. I'm not going to talk about that extensively here. All I'm going to say is that, for example, in Super Mario RPG, doing those 100 jumps was insane. And there's some other variables involved that make it a little bit uh, trickier. In some later games, most notably the Mario & Luigi series... Some of these inputs get a little bit too ridiculous the other way, rather than being too threadbare or just hit A again. There's things in the Mario & Luigi series. Mario & Luigi Dream Team is a great example with the Luigi and attacks, which are just absolutely insane. The stuff you have to do to make some of those attacks happen. And here's the critical part. From a game design perspective, let's use one of those Luigi and attacks. If you use one of those attacks and don't do well, the damage output is pathetic. In fact, it's less than if you hadn't used the attack at all. So not only are you not being you know, not rewarded for doing it well, you're actively being penalized for doing it badly. By contrast, in Paper Mario uh, 2, with very few exceptions, you won't actually be penalized for doing it badly. The only ways that will happen is if the enemy is is specifically designed to be anti-whatever you're using, which I'll talk about in just a moment. So, in addition to that, it's usually a lot more binary in Paper Mario 2. You can jump, and that does an additional damage, as opposed to you successfully get two or three or four stacks of Luigis in order to to stomp on them doing two, three, or four variable damage. Make sense? Now, I said I'd talk about the enemies. That's another thing that Paper Mario 2 excels at. Early on, most of the enemies are basically, I'm here, or I can be knocked over, or I'm in the air, or I have some kind of spike on my head, and that's basically it. But the further you get into this game, the greater variety of enemies there are, and not just in the ways that they are defended or presented, but in their attack strategies. The AI, for lack of a better way to put it, varies, and there are certain enemies that basically reward you for fighting them in a very specific way or outthinking them, and otherwise would absolutely wreck you. Um, Now, this is not unique to Paper Mario 2. Paper Mario 1 did this as well, but I think it adds a wonderful variety to the sequence of events and makes it so that, basically, combat doesn't get boring like it probably should. I'm not going to say that this game's overall design philosophy is perfect, but this might actually be the best-balanced, most smoothly-designed RPG that I have ever played in my life. So, um... I guess that's most of what I have to say about the the gameplay. Usually I like to use these sections to talk about the the behind-the-scenes stuff. Unfortunately, I have very little information to tell you about the the behind-the-scenes stuff because there's just not a lot of information that I've been able to dig up. Super Mario RPG was made by a combination of several members working at Nintendo as well as some people who would eventually become part of Intelligent Design, or Intelligent Systems, excuse me, and several people at Squaresoft. You know, not Square Enix, this was before that. They made Super Mario RPG... It was awesome. It sold very well. So they were going to make Super Mario RPG 2. Rights issues happened. I'm not even sure of the details, to be honest with you. And instead they called it Paper Mario. Changed the aesthetic uh, and basically handed it off to a completely new team. Then Paper Mario 2 happened, which was always designed to be a direct sequel to it. But here's the interesting thing. Near as I can tell, and it's worth noting I was not able to 100% verify this, but near as I can tell, it was supposed to be Super Mario RPG, Paper Mario, Paper Mario 2, were all supposed to be part of an overarching story. Not literally, I'm saying that wrong, not literally one story across three games, not like the Mass Effect, for example, but rather strongly connected stories that were all part of one overall, like, series of events, um... Kind of how uh, several of Star Trek The Next Generation approaches both character and setting continuity, for example, rather than a direct string continuity. Obviously, that did not come to pass. While Paper Mario and Paper Mario 2 do reference each other quite a bit, that's about as far as that goes. I've never been able to determine exactly why that is, but I do know that that intent was then rebooted into another game called... Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga on the Game Boy Advance, which actually came out pretty much at the same time as Paper Mario 2, go figure. Uh, Not the first time, or the last time, or excuse me, not the last time, the first time and not the last time that will happen, because, um, for example, Paper Mario Sticker Star and Mario and Luigi Dream Team both came out also pretty much at the same time. So... The Mario and Luigi series, by contrast, have a great, much stronger continuity between them. You know, events of the first game affect events of the second game, and characters carry forward in whatever changes or arcs they've been going through. And then same in the third game, and then same into the fourth game, and you get the point. Paper Mario 2 has several references to Paper Mario, but that's about as far as that goes. And Super Paper Mario... (sighs) I would say by the time of Super Paper Mario, which is a good game, it's worth noting, that's more referential, not actually literally, oh, hey, this thing happened a while ago. It's more like, hey, there's an Easter egg over there about one of the previous games, and that's as far as it goes. And then, of course, we know what happened with Sticker Star. Anyways, I also want to mention one other thing for you. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find my physical copy of it. It's probably somewhere in my deep storage uh, archives area. How many of you have actually read the old Super Mario World comic? It came out a bit piecemeal in Nintendo Power many, many years ago, back when I was young. And it's available in a single format. Uh, I was actually able to pick up a copy at Walmart one time out of just, oh my god, look, it's right here. Uh, along with the Zelda one, which is, the Zelda's basically a manga at that point. The, the Mario one's not quite a manga, but it's leaning that way. I imagine a lot of you know what I'm talking about. You're probably wondering why I'm bringing it up, though. That's where the personalities of a lot of the Mario characters began. Peach being the strong-willed, get-stuff-done-let's-go kind of a person. Luigi being somewhat cowardly and uncertain of himself. Mario being the stalwart hero. Bowser being the I'm super... oh, Oh, my God, this is so... You know, basically, Bowser being the comic relief villain. All of these things started in that comic... Now, it could be argued when those things were really codified, but it's worth noting that all of this goes back to one little comic that was just put out basically for fun in Nintendo Power back in the 90s. But all of that was really continued forward in the RPG series. Both the Mario & Luigi's and the Paper Mario's very much continue all of these plot threads. In fact, if I have only one complaint uh, as far as characters when it comes to Paper Mario 2, is I wish we could have done even more with Princess Peach, but I'll discuss that in a little bit. I bring this up, though, because Luigi is kind of awesome in this game, and so is Bowser, and so is Peach, and basically so are all the characters. This is a very character-heavy game, and yet not really quite a character-centric game. It's hard to talk about the story of Paper Mario 2, you know, the, the, the six points of story that I like to discuss in Paper Mario 2. As much as I can other games, most other games are designed, you know, there's a a strong central theme that's just going throughout the entire work, or there's one cohesive plot, or the story is really focused on the characters. In Paper Mario 2, there's no focus, story-wise. What I mean by that is nothing is being focused on more than anything else. There is a strong plot that goes throughout the entire game, it's very well handled. There's actually a a great moment about midway through, which I'll discuss later, which just was like, huh? It is very well paced, and it's very well presented as you're examining through it, but each chapter also presents its own subplot, which, while connected to the main trunk of the plot, ultimately is just kind of doing its own thing. And each of those chapters also focus on characters, usually the local characters, but also fleshing out the recurring characters as well. One of the truly strange things about Paper Mario 2 is how many random NPCs you meet in chapters 1 and 2 that you continue to meet in later chapters. And in some cases, become major quest NPCs by the time you get to whatever chapter is featuring them. I mean, a really good example of this is you can meet Flavio right out of the bat. You just, all right, you're in Rogue Part. You can go into the inn, and there he is singing his song about the bossa boom, right? How I mean, how early do you see Gold Bob? Uh, and he becomes a recurring character how early do you see general white and so forth and so on so there's a strong uh, there's a lot of characterization throughout this not as much character growth themes if there is one theme to paper mario 2 it is the the theme of tragedy this is an entire pretty much every major story and the individual chapter stories in paper mario 2 are all tied into the concept of things going badly and ultimately it's not really anyone's fault per se It's just a whole bunch of different victims. Some of this is debatable, of course. For example, in Chapter 3, it's debatable how much of a good guy or a bad guy that Grubba is. He comes across as distinctly affable, kind, and generally warm in his approach, even after his secret is revealed. And yet he is more than willing to do evil and vicious acts, in fact, frankly horrific acts as he's talking about it. But... It is implied, if you pay attention, especially, there's a lot of hidden lore in the background in Troubles or in NPC dialogues or whatever in this game. So it's implied, if you pay attention to everything, that Grubba was just another fighter who wanted to make it big, who pretty much by accident stumbled onto how to utilize the Crystal Star and thus kind of became the person who was totally okay with effectively soul draining people. Oh yeah, by the way, this game's dark. <laughs> The Mario RPGs uh, tend to be reasonably dark. Super Mario RPG itself was actually pretty damn dark. Uh, Paper Mario was pretty lighthearted. That was a a, a switch away from that. But Super Paper Mario on the Wii is damned dark. Pretty much all the Mario and Luigi games are damned dark. But all of that could be argued, debatably, to have really started with this game. This game is unashamed, unafraid of just staring right at some very, very dark concepts and themes, including murder... And um, or being orphaned, um, like I said, mentioned earlier, ripping the souls out of people, mass hallucination, uh, manipulation on an individual and on a grand scale, uh, torture, imprisonment, enslavement—you know—there's there, several aspects of this game that go out of their way to to address dark issues in the confines of a Mario RPG. In many ways, this game is probably one of the most Dragon Quest uh, effect games that I've ever played. And yes, that's another Lorium's plug there for anybody curious. In fact, one of the things the game does right off the beginning, which I'll discuss whenever we get to this Mario Pseudo lore run, is it's like, all right, here's the opening area. There's debris everywhere. The buildings are not even fully paved or completed. There's a noose in the middle of town. And Mario gets robbed. All of these things just bam, 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 right off the beginning. And nowadays, you look back, you probably don't even think about all this stuff. But at the time, it was necessary to establish that tone. This is a dark story. It's dark for Mario. You know, we don't get into really, truly horrible things, things that I don't even want to see in my fiction. But it is dark, which is what I do want to see in my fiction, if if that makes any kind of sense. I will also say that... uh, one of the other things that this game does strangely is it likes to flip-flop tonally. Uh, some people criticize the recent Wolfenstein II, New Colossus, for having this exact same thing. And many other works, um, I'm not going to spoil, but say the recent Thor Ragnarok or the Guardians of the Galaxy films are another example of super dark serious, but then silly! This game does that a lot. Probably the most egregious example is with Bobbery's big tail, and I'll get, I'll get to that, I'll get to that. <clears throat> So, there's one last thing I want to talk about is a generalized thing about this game before I start getting down to specifics and going through the act structure, and that is setting. This game does more to establish the Mario setting, arguably, than any other game ever. Now, it's not like other Mario games haven't established the Mario setting. The Mario and Luigi series does a lot in this regard. but Paper Mario 2 treats the Mario world like it is a living, breathing world. You know, like anybody who's heard me talk about Final Fantasy IX, same general feel here. Lots of NPCs, lots of establishment of cultures and different dialects and different mindsets, uh, economic understructures um, and trade routes and crime organizations and the frickin' train and the upper elite. We've got many, many aspects of establishment of technology and magic and the functionality of the very way the world works, the concept of a game over as, as a literal method of dying, we have undead in this game, for God's sakes. So there is a lot done to make this the world of the Mario setting. Now, of course, as I will discuss during the, the Mario RPG pseudo-lore run, there's basically three major continuities for the Marios in general, and this was only one of them. But to this day, when I think of things from the Mario setting, when I think of Mario concepts like the shy guys or, you know, the, the, uh, the bumpies, <clears throat> which is the little penguin guys, or if I think about, you know, the Koopas and what they're doing, or if I think about the Piantas, a lot of what I think about the people or the culture or the society or the geography or the politics all comes from this game. It does it everywhere. I'm not going to summarize it for you, other than what I've already said. I'm not going to go down a huge list of all the things this game establishes. It just does a very good job of it, and I love it. So, I'm looking at my stuff here. Um, Several of our secondary characters, the party members who join us, have character arcs. Uh, At least two of them have pretty, excuse me, three of them. Have for, uh, pretty definitive character arcs. Bobbery's character arc doesn't really happen on as he's a party member per se. We actually kind of go through his character arc in order to recruit him. And then we've got Miss Meows, who's actually an optional party member. Spoiler alert: who doesn't really have anything approaching an arc other than the fact that she really, really wants to kiss Mario's nose for some reason. I I don't know. I'm not into noses, so that's up to her. I mean, she's a mouse, so I guess maybe. <laughs> And then we've got, um, uh, actually, I guess that's it for, oh no, then we've got uh, young Yoshi. Sorry, I knew there was someone else. Uh, the young Yoshi, who actually doesn't have a proper name, because you name him. He doesn't really have a character arc. He's kind of, he's young, and he comes across as a punk. And that's kind of it for him. The closest thing he has to any character development is the fact that he finally learns how to say the name Mario instead of Gonzalez, And that's literally in the ending we kind of have the barest edges of a character arc for Madame Flurry, because she starts off, you know, and she's all about helping out these people, but she's basically on her own. And then she goes through this great adventure, and after finishing the adventure, she's like, I must go back to the stage, and I must share this story with the world. And, and she ends up doing that alongside Duplis, actually, so good on her, but that's about as far as she goes. No, the only characters with real character arcs in this game are Goombella, Koops, and Vivian. Now, Gumbella's character arc is kind of a subtle one, because it looks like, if you're paying attention, and I'm sure you are, it looks like her tone and her presentation don't change throughout the whole game. Except it totally does, because Gumbella is the kind of character who puts on this brave front pretty much all the time and yet it is Goombella who is the most wigged out or afraid of or otherwise affected by what's going on, pretty much in exact contrast to the facade she portrays. What happens throughout the course of the game is it gets to the point where, rather than being like, oh my god, you know, or reacting to things with fear or horror, she starts reacting to them with determination or bravery, in other words. She basically overcomes her own feeling of being just a Goomba. And it's actually kind of wonderfully subtle the way they do that, because she's a Goomba, you know. Also, Goombella better than Goombario, just saying. Not that I don't like Goombario, he's cool too. Koops is pretty obvious. Koops actually probably has the most truncated character arc, because his happens entirely within his own chapter, chapter 1. You you meet him, and you can actually talk to him earlier on, and he's just just fairly... It's really really kind of hard for him to, to talk normally, but Never mind, I I just... You know, that's not shy, per se. That's the wrong word. It's lacking in any degree of self-confidence. And I imagine a lot of you out there, and I certainly do, know what it's like to lack self-confidence. And that is Koops, in a nutshell. He's very unsure of himself. Then, Koops travels with the world-famous Mario through a giant, undead-infested castle to fight a building-sized dragon. I'm truncating a little bit, but this is what he goes through. And, lo and behold, he does actually grow up and mature a decent amount throughout the course of that story. And, if you're paying attention, his tone and presentation are very different from this point on. He doesn't stutter as much, he doesn't hesitate as much, and he is more willing to speak his mind. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if most of you don't know that, because most people probably don't keep Coops in their party, because gameplay-wise, he's kind of crap. But if you ever feel like doing a challenge mode just to see his lines of dialogue, by all means, keep Coops around. You'll see what I mean. The final one is, of course, Vivian. Funny fact, when I was streaming this, uh, because I did a brief stream, I ended up playing the rest of it offline, but I did a brief stream to uh, just kind of have some stream time while I was working on the the pre-rumination notes. And I was like, so who's your favorite party member? And I got a few responses. You know, some people said Coops, some people said Bobbery. Bobbery's cool. Um... The vast overwhelming majority of people said Vivian. (laughs) Quick thing about Vivian. Uh, It could be argued based on translation issues because there's actually more than a couple of gender confusions between Japanese and English in this game. Like, there's several times where it's referred to as one gender in one country and then another gender in the other country, so... All that matters to me is that Vivian, no matter which version you're playing, identifies as female, and therefore I'm going to keep calling Vivian a she. Vivian has a wonderful character arc, because she starts off as the quiet one, if you're paying attention. And then she has a couple of lines in Chapter 2, where she's obviously the berated one, but she's still the smart one of the three, paying attention and keeping up on things. I have heard some fan theorists say that Beldam was actually deliberately trying to push Vivian away, specifically so that Vivian would not be beholden to the Shadow Queen. There's actually a decent amount of evidence in this game, If again, if you go digging, that Vivian has never met the Shadow Queen, but Beldam has. In other words, Beldam knows firsthand what kind of a nightmare that thing is, and Vivian is an innocent. Honestly, I kind of like that theory, and this is the kind of game to do little subtle things in the background like that, so it wouldn't surprise me too much. But I digress. Vivian's character arc is so obvious I don't have much to say else about it. I do, however, like the fact that Vivian decides to help you because you're nice to her. Which brings me to another thing I wanted to talk about really quick. This game is where I came up with the term The Mario. I'd already kind of thought about it before, and there are other characters in fiction who could be called The Mario... But this is the game that really codified that phrase in my mind. Mario goes way out of his way to be kind and nice and helpful to everyone. And unless you choose certain dialogue options, in which case that's on you. (laughs) You, Seriously, there's actually a surprising amount of options to be a dick in this game. It's weird. But if you don't do that, Mario is in fact kind and nice and considerate to everyone. And nowhere is that personified better than with his interactions with Vivian. In a state in which Mario has lost all of his companions, has lost his name and identity, and is now trapped. By the way, fun fact, if you try to go back through the pipe to leave that area, you can't. Because you don't have a name. Right? Because you needed your name to be on your overalls to go through in the first place. Nicely clever thing there. Anyways, or I think it's on your shoe, but whatever. So in this state where Mario is basically at his worst, he sees some poor girl, who he knows is his enemy, by the way, he's actually fought her already, walks up, and tries to help her. That's Mario, right there. And for all the boringness of his character, that is one of the things I like about him. But I digress. Let's talk about... What am I looking at? So I talked about the variety, Um, I talked about the trash fights, and the frequency, Um, I talked about the Zelda dungeon-y things, I may almost be i be about halfway through my notes already. I did a lot of uh, talking during that preamble. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about a few NPCs uh, as we go here. Let's talk about some of the recurring NPCs. So Bowser's awesome. I don't, I, I don't actually have much else to add to that. Except there's one scene about Bowser's I really want to add to it. There's a scene pretty far in, actually, where Bowser has just gone through this dungeon. And he's like, holy crap, that was incredible. And Cammy's like, my god, you just wrecked that place and then rock hawk shows up now i'll talk about rock hawk in a minute but what i love about it is for those of you who don't remember rock hawk was not an easy fight he was one of the harder fights of his of, of that entire first half of the game rock hawk attacks bowser and Bowser one st- one shots him just <laughs> I love that, because in my mind, being really, really strong has always been one of Bowser's character traits, as weird as that may sound. That for all his dopiness and for all his silliness, and for the fact that he legitimately cares about his people, again, this goes back to the comics and Super Mario RPG, it's also a recurring theme in Mario & Luigi uh, 3, Bowser's Inside Story. For all of the fact that he's, you know, he cares about his own people, he's a good boss, he's, Light-hearted and silly and funny and ridiculous. He's also a death machine. He is this incredibly powerful doom monster. I mean, again, not to spoil, but in Mario Odyssey during the finale, we see just what an incredibly unstoppable badass that Bowser really is, as he should be. And I've always liked that that's always been a part of his character. It helps to add a little bit more to him, because if that wasn't there, then well, he'd just be kind of pathetic, wouldn't he? Still endearing. But now he's... I don't know. Anyways, I just—I like how they present that in this game. But I can't talk about Bowser without talking about Kami Koopa. Now, I do have a question for those of you who actually know what I'm talking about. Who do you prefer? Kamek or Kami? Now, I personally prefer Kami, and Paper Mario 1 and Paper Mario 2 are basically why. She's the kind of person who th- thinks she's evil, thinks she's a villain but isn't at all. Like, it's like... (laughs) Nowhere is this more apparent than her first appearance in this game, where she's like, Yes, I have found Mario, and I found this Crystal Stars, and I also found this wonderful meadow, and I was thinking of inviting all the guys for a picnic there, because it sounded wonderful. I would, of course, invite you first. You like fried eggs, Bowser? (laughs) That's Cammie in a nutshell. She's not actually evil, any more than Bowser is. She's just... I guess, faux evil? I'm not I'm not even sure what to call that. It, it's a thing that you see every now and again in fiction, where there's someone who's like, ha ha, I'm a bad guy, and they're not, right? <laughs> that's very Kami Koopa, and that's what I like about her. It's also interesting to note that they mention that she's the brains of Bowser's brawn, but I think it would be more accurate to say that she is the ultimate support mage. Even when you actually fight Bowser and Cami, she is mean with the kind of spells she can use to buff, heal, and debuff throughout the course of that fight. You need to take her out pronto. Otherwise, that fight can be very rough. So, I do want to talk about tech briefly. Um, oh, actually, you know what? Really quick. I want to contrast Kami... I noticed this in my notes here. I want to contrast Kami to Beldam. Now, I, I kind of already talked about Beldam, but it depends on your interpretation of Beldam as to which thing is more accurate. Is Beldam actually an unpleasant, horrible person? Because Beldam comes across as rude and crude the entire game. The whole thing. The only time she ever has anything even remotely redeeming is in the ending, and I'll talk about that later. So, if you assume that she was pushing Vivian away for her own good, that adds something redeemable to her character arc. But otherwise, she's just a monstrosity the whole time. And pretty much the exact opposite of Cammy. Cammy's the person who like Bowser, is a good boss. You know, works well with, uh, with others. Is like, ah, good work, you know, and giving giving praise to the, the, the scout pair or giving praise to the Koopas who show up or whatever. Beldam is the one who constantly belittles those around her, whether it's Vivian or Duplis, and basically goes out of her way to be as unpleasant as possible to everyone except whoever she's sucking up to, which is either Grotus or the Shadow Queen. Eh. Anyways. <clears throat> so... There's a lot of little small stories in this game, and I've decided for the sake of brevity to not list all of them. I just want to mention one that I kind of wish we could see more of. Paper Luigi! But, no, that's true. I do want to see more of that. But what I would also like to see more of is the Jobbies and the Punies. For those of you who didn't really pay attention, while you're going through Chapter 2, which we'll talk about, um, there's a bit where you find out that the Jobbies and the Punies have kind of a, a racial war going on. That's been going on for some time, that the two forces have basically been duking it out for control of the tree for God knows how many generations. And, of course, there's hints there that neither side really wants to be involved in this war, and it's like, ah, God, do we have to keep fighting each other? And uh, Punio himself even says, you know, I actually met a jobby once. He was pretty cool, and he was my friend, but he was a jobby, so we couldn't be friends anymore. I kind of wish we'd seen more of that story. But no, instead we destroy the jobby fortresses because they're in our way. <coughs> Anyways, at least we never literally fight them. I also want to talk about uh, Tech, who is kind of a recurring character. Now, Tech, for me, I have to admit that I have a lot of headcanon when it comes to certain characters. So let me just discuss what we know about Tech and what we know about Grotus. Tech is a computer built by Grotus who falls in love with Peach. And while he is, to a degree, endearing, he's not that engaging of a character. They do the, you know, falls in love, uh, computer falls in love trope pretty well. But it is still the classical trope and that they don't really do much with it. It's just, you know, straight on the edge kind of a thing. Grotus is whew, very evil. Like in complete contrast to, uh, Cammy or Bowser for that matter. Grotus is someone who actually wants to, and I'm just going to quote him here, create a world for him by, uh, uh, create a world under him, by him, for him. You know, it's a very Tarkin-type character, selfish to a fault. Brilliant and powerful, too, which is kind of a mean combination. If you'll forgive me, I'd like to share a little bit of headcanon with regards to Grotus, because I want to do that. I like the idea that Grotus is such a brilliant egotist, and he is a pure egotist. Even when he literally is about to be killed, he can't believe the fact that he's losing. It, It doesn't even process for him. I like the idea that he was so brilliant that he invented these this cybernetic upgrade, because he does have cybernetics. He actually looks kind of like a toad, if you're paying attention, too. So I like to think that he was a particularly brilliant toad who designed this thing for him, and was like, oh, and and made this whole battle body and, and the augments and the new brain cybernetics and whatnot. And it wasn't perfect, because he isn't actually that smart. He's very smart, but he's not that smart. And so it's imperfect. The uh, the flesh to, to cybernetic implants and connections aren't perfect. So to summarize a little bit, he's in pain pretty much all the time. But he can't change it or upgrade it because that would mean admitting that he did something wrong or that he, his own design was flawed. So internally, he's constantly hating these upgrades because he can't admit that he made a mistake and refuses to turn away from it in his own stubbornness and pride. Just a little bit of uh, additional stuff there I thought about him. Anyways. Now, I'm looking at my notes here. I think we can go ahead and start talking about the acts. So, this game, while it is an excellent game in its own right, really to properly appreciate this game and what it does, because this game in many ways is a subversion of your typical JRPG, you have to have played some JRPGs first, and it especially helps if you played Paper Mario first. Now... As I think I made clear, I love Paper Mario. I replayed the hell out of that game, but it is a very uh, patterned game. Go to new area, right? You know, brief intermission, very brief intermission, back in Toad Town. Go to new area. You know, some kind of puzzle that has to be solved. Dungeon, some kind of story stuff. Boss. Return to town. Brief intermission. You know, and it was it's that for every chapter in Paper Mario. It's the same basic format. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But that establishment helps to understand the structure of Paper Mario 2. Because Act 1 has you go through a brief puzzle bit, get to a new town, learn some things, do a dungeon and fight a boss. Then you go back. Then you have a slight intermission. Not not a big one. It's just a little bit of a quick, uh, <clears throat> quick dealio. But before I move on, I just want to co- comment on a couple of things. First of all, it's a little bit on the nose, so much so that I actually missed it my first time playing this. But the first act, literally, the first uh, chapter in this game, literally has you go to a castle to fight an evil red dragon. It is pretty much straight up classical RPG status right there. And it's worth noting that this is an evil dragon. This is a castle filled with dead people. This was one of the fortresses of the old Shadow Queen. The Again, this is where we find out about the whole undeath thing. And we find Colorado's dad, who died here. Colorado was a character in Paper Mario 1. And so forth and so on. In fact, at one point, the boss eats the audience. Now, we are able to, you know, knock some of the audience members out of her mouth, but Jesus, that caught my attention. Then we get to Act 2. Now, uh, Chapter 2, excuse me. Now, I was talking about this on the stream as well. If I'm being honest, Chapter 2 is by far my least favorite of the chapters of this game. It's not actually bad, bad, but it's clearly worse design. You, it feels like they just were kind of throwing whatever to gear, together for Chapter 2, which is a shame because there's some good story moments. This is when we also really get, get to see uh, Lord Crump on display for the first time. And... The visual designs for the area are phenomenal. I would love to see... I mean, I, I like the aesthetic of the Paper Mario series, well, of Paper Mario 2 specifically, but I would love to see a fully designed, you know, Unreal Engine or, you know, full 3D Awesome or whatever of the, the rainbow grass with black and white foliage around it and the tree that has literal veins of living water slowly running up it. It just looks really cool. And I love it. Um... <clears throat> So as we're going through that, we meet the punies. I can already mention them and the jobbies. I don't have much else to add to that. You know, a lot of jokes, a lot of humor. Uh, this is a good time to mention the tone thing. I mentioned that there's kind of a lighter-hearted tone. And I want to talk about that very briefly because I've had trouble discussing this in the past. I've actually discussed several games and movies uh, and uh, for the show as well as in real life that have this. It's not that they joke a lot. It's not like you say, you know, why'd the chicken cross the road? To go stab that guy in the face. You know, they don't, because he was a Nazi. They don't really do jokes all that much, right? There are some jokes. Most of them are actually quite uh, hidden or subtle. Uh, to use an example, in chapter two, there's this bit where Pino says, God, I, I don't know where the secret entrance is. It's not like there's going to be some big stupid sign saying secret entrance. Several minutes later, when you come back and unveil the secret entrance, there's a big sign that says secret entrance. No attention is paid to that, by the way. It's just, that's the joke. <clears throat> so they do do jokes. But for the most part, it's just kind of a lighthearted tone. The kind of thing you normally get with a parody, where the dialogue is intended to be taken as just kind of a lightly jovial, humorous aspect. Which is, again, funny considering that, as I mentioned earlier, this game is damned dark. But I digress. So you go through Act Two. Uh, Chapter Two, excuse me. I have, I don't know why I keep calling them Acts. You get down there and, uh, the visuals are great, the forest is cool, but here's the thing. There's three things that chapter two does very wrong from a design perspective. First and foremost, there's a lot of necessary backtracking. The, the tree, which is effectively the dungeon of chapter two, isn't actually that large. You know, there's the, you go up, and you go up, you go down, you go down, you go down, 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 and that's basically it. Those, I guess, six or so levels. That's pretty much the bulk of the tree. But first you go up, you free the one person, then you go down, it's like, oh, okay. Then you go up and you do this, and then that unlocks another thing, so you can go over here, and then you go down, and then you go back up, and then you go back down, and then you go back up because you fell into the obvious trap, and then you go back around, then you backtrack again, and then you go back down, and then you go back up. And I'm not actually making this up. I'm actually running through the game in my mind right now. There is a tremendous amount of backtracking, and almost every area you backtrack through almost feels designed to take longer than just walking from point A to point B, or is an empty room. Probably the worst example of this is after you fall into the trap that I mentioned and you have to backtrack up to go get the, the, the boots power up. There are two rooms that you go through as you're doing that backtracking, which are literally empty rooms. It's the two rooms in which you had the jobby encounters. But once the jobbies are gone, there's nothing there. So it's literally just walking through an empty room. This is not how you do good backtracking design. Most of the chapters have backtracking to some extent or another. And we'll talk about that more in chapter 4. But what the hell? (laughs) Then there's the fact that it's an escort quest. And it's an irritating escort quest. And in fact, for several aspects of the escort quest, you can sometimes lose some of the punies following you for no reason just because you happen to get too far away from them, or the logic doesn't understand that you went around a corner. And heaven help you if you drop over a ledge, because you're instantly going to lose all your punies if you do that. So you have to escort these guys, and you have to escort 100% of them. You can't lose any of them in any given circumstance, or you will no longer be able to properly progress. Now, it's worth noting that if you permanently lose them, and, like, if you abandon them, you can actually go backtrack back up to talk to the Elder, who will then resummon them. So you can't, like, permanently, permanently lose them. But, yeah. <laughs> the, it, And it's such an aggravation, and it doesn't help that a lot of the music for Chapter 2 is very low quality compared to the overall music of the rest of the, seri- uh, of the, rest of the game. So then you finally slog through that. You are rewarded with an awesome boss fight with uh, Lord Crump's wonderful robot. Then we get to Chapter 3. Confession time. I really like Chapter 3. Chapter 3 was the... A lot of that comes from the first time I played this game. And from my own personal opinions. I do like arena-style combat. I do like, you know, working your way up the ranks, championship kind of stuff in general. I wish it was more in-depth and more complex than literally just fighting your way up. But Chapter 3 does several things very right and a few things very, very wrong. First of all... The things that it does very wrong is the early half of the chapter drags a lot because it's go up to the, you know, what is required of you is sign up for a new match and it's always the same dialogue. Like it's almost exactly the same dialogue except for the requirement of the fight, which I'll talk about in a second, and, you know, who you're fighting and that's it. So sign up, go through the whole intro, you got to fight these, let's get a rumble, general, and then you fight, then you go back and then you do it again and again and again and again and again. It happens several times. You have to do it, I think, like 19 times or or 21 times. I forget which. But either way, you got to do it a lot. That's what I'm trying to say. It gets old. But then there's a lot of things that it does very, very right. Chapter 3 is when the difficulty does take a noticeable upcline. But that's... Upcline? Is that a word? (laughs) Goes up a bit. (laughs) Um... Because in order to progress, you have to fulfill certain objectives for certain fights. Now in some cases, and it's pretty rare, but it's possible to get a specific objective for a fight that you actually can't do. You know, if you're wondering what I mean, like don't use your jump command. Get hit five times. Um, don't use items. Appeal to the audience. Don't swap out your partner. Don't let your partner attack. Use a special power, and I think I'm missing a few there. Oh yeah, and wrap it up in five turns is one of them. So there's several additional requirements, and you have to do these. These are mandatory. You can't skip these. You have to do them to progress, and they are randomized. So it is possible to get a pretty crap one. But at the same time, if this had been a little bit more carefully designed, rather than randomized, but specifically designed, it would encourage the player to try out new things, because that is actually what it does. Chapter 3 is when the game stops you for a bit and says, okay, you got to learn how to play this game now. Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 were just normal, typical stuff. Now we're going to start challenging you. And several of the later fights are actually pretty damned rough, especially with the challenges on top of them. The Koopinator, the the Red Chomps, uh, Hamma Bama, and Flare, all of these are pretty rough fights, just on their own right. And then you have to do it while getting hit five times or whatever, right? I do like that it encourages you. I do like that it challenges you, and I do like that it basically forces you to to, to push out of your, your comfort zone and break new boundaries. I do think it could have been better designed if those challenges were manually crafted specific to the fight you're about to fight, but I digress on that one. Now, I also want to say, Chapter 3 is when I fell in love with this game. Like I said, I'm a bit biased because Chapter 1 is Town, Dungeon, Boss. Chapter 2 is Town dungeon boss chapter three is arena. Uh, um, <laughs> chapter three takes the standard status quo and completely spins it around. It does. It is it, structurally it's completely different from every other uh, thing. It still has some dungeon Zelda Zelda dungeon style sections as you go through and, and learn more about the plot that's going on, and it does still have a boss at the end, who's we'll, we'll talk about in a second. But it also plays with your expectations. We meet several recurring characters here. King Koopa, uh, King Koopa K or whatever, the yellow Koopa. Um, we meet, uh, Grubba, of course, Macho Grubba. I already kind of talked about him briefly earlier, but you know, this affable, kind-hearted kind of, hey, what's going on? Also, I'm secretly eating the souls of my people. And it's never stated outright, but it's made pretty clear that the people whom he consumes their souls die when he, uh, at, you know, sometime after he does that. Like, the only exception to that was Prince Mush himself, and he has no memory of what happened in the intervening time. Yeah. And there's also several signs that the whole arena is just kind of shady in general. And that's why this is the Mass Effect 2 of the Mario RPGs. I know that sounds like an out-of-nowhere statement, but let me qualify that for just a moment. Mass Effect 1 was the upper crust of society of the galaxy. We were pretty much just in the Citadel space. We got to see the Citadel themselves. We got to see what higher corporate politics was like. They were still evil and manipulative, but that was on the, the up and up side. Mass Effect 2 was the, the underside of the galaxy. The terminus systems and the places that don't have the kind of money or funding to, to bother looking pretty where drug trade or slavery or whatever is much more common, you know. And that's one of the reasons why I feel both Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2 complete each other in several ways, and both would be weaker without the other. Paper Mario 2 is the Mass Effect 2 of these games. We get to see a lot of the underbelly of the, of the world of, of Mario, and Glitzpill, which is the place where Chapter 3 happens, is a great example of this. Because this is this big, wonderful fighting arena, which is every bit as horrible as you'd actually imagine it to be. Also, really subtle point that most people I know haven't actually picked up on. That's why I'm bringing it up. There's a lot of Likidus on Glitzville. Because Likidus can fly. And so they can just go there whenever they want. Anyways. So, we've got Grubba. I already talked about him. Jolene is an interesting case. Now, I'll admit, Jolene tricked me the first time. The game does a very good job of making it clear that Jolene is up to something. And she comes across as incredibly cold and callous every time you talk to her, except after you fight the you know the boss of Macho Grubba. So, d- definite props on that one. It especially helps because there are three separate people who give you emails throughout the course of the chapter. One who just straight up threatens you. One who threatens you crudely. And one who gives you weird, unknown hints. And the way it's structured makes it, if if you're playing for the first time, Grubba is the one who is the most likely candidate for the one who's giving you the hints. Jolene is the one who's the most likely candidate for the one, you know, threatening you. And then Rockhawk is the one who's threatening you crudely because that one's really obvious. He's kind of a red herring in his own way. Um, I don't actually have as much to say about Rockhawk as I'd like to. He's a, he's a fun fight. And he's, one of the little tidbits that's kind of lacking in his characterization in the English version is that he's not actually usually a dirty fighter. The entire reason he decides to start playing dirty and trying to get us locked away, you know, giving us the the poison cake or trying to put us aside or whatever, is because we insulted his belt. No, seriously, that's the only reason. We said his belt was fake. He didn't understand that. He thought that meant, I am the champion. Like in Japanese, he flies, I am the champion. I am the champion. Like he thought we were calling him fake. So he starts coming after us for it. Once we beat him in a one-on-one fight, he realizes that's not what was happening. So we're cool, you know, at that point on. Um, Just a little characterization there. But as you're going through this whole mystery thing, one thing I want to point out that I do like about Chapter 3, just really quick before I move on, is that after almost every fight, all but I think five of the 19 or 21 fights, you can leave, go out, go to the juice shop, go talk to people, and there's either little new tidbits of dialogue or new little events or whatever that you can interact with that gives you something to do other than just mashing the fight meter over and over again. It does help to flesh out the chapter significantly. But Chapter 4 is back down to... You know everything being normal. But this is a good time to talk about the Princess Peach sections and the Bowser sections. Now, <clears throat> chapter one had a brief interlude with Bo- Peach, and then a brief interlude with Bowser. But both were, for all intents and purposes, cutscenes. They were controllable cutscenes, but it was still talk to people, and that's the extent of the gameplay. Chapter two and onward starts having the actual Princess Peach sections. And I've been using this term to refer to this type of gameplay ever since. Although I think I actually came up with the term in Paper Mario 1. But the point remains. A Princess Peach section is a specific type of a meanwhile elsewhere. Where you jump over to another viewpoint that you wouldn't otherwise see on your protagonist's viewpoint. You learn more about what's going on either in terms of character or in terms of plot or in terms of setting or whatever. Sometimes it's foreshadowing, sometimes it's thematic. But you learn additional things about the story. And... You are doing it from a new perspective, which has new gameplay to help flesh that character out. Just to be as blunt as I can, there are several other games that I think that could stand to have more, or any, Princess Peach sections in them. For example, FF15 comes to mind immediately. So I like a good Princess Peach section in a game. The Princess Peach sections are usually puzzles of slowly increasing complexity as you go throughout. Then you do the Bowser sections. Now these are funny, because... I have a feeling that some people don't really understand the point of these. That they think, oh, it's just to do a retro stage. Which isn't what you're doing, because you're not doing a retro stage. The Bowser stages are not retro stages. They are built based off of old retro stages, but the entire point is to showcase Bowser in a humorous tone, and yet at the same time show the complete difference between him and Mario. Mario goes through stage 1-1 one, one, by jumping and getting the power-ups and avoiding things, Bowser goes through stage 1-1 by eating meat, becoming gigantic, and destroying everything in his path. And that's the point, really. So each one of these Bowser sections is designed not just for the sake of the retro, which is good in its own right, but to specifically add to that, rather than just, here's level 1-1 again, doing something with it. So then we get to chapter 4. This is when we go to Twilight Town. This is my, this is arguably one of my favorite chapters. I, I shouldn't say, this is one of my favorite chapters in the game. Because this is when the game gets cute. So chapter four, you go in and the tone is dour, tense, dark. And I don't, and I mean, I don't just mean because it's Twilight. Everyone there speaks morosely and slowly and about how unpleasant things are. There are no less than five separate occurrences that I counted. I might have missed some. As you're going through the town in the first section of Twilight Town, where you talk to someone, want, wander away, and then a bell rings. And if you go back to check on the person, which you don't have to do. It's feel fully optional. But if you go back to check on them, they're not there anymore. There's just a pig. As in a literal pig. They've been cursed. And you get to see this town slowly descend into this. In some cases, it's kind of humorous, but for the most part, there's a lot of genuine tension and... Uh, I, I don't know what else to call it, just that this dour mood, this melancholy going throughout the, the tone and the arc of it. Especially when... And there's this one part where you go to the gatekeeper, and he's like, no, you can't... You can't you get permission, okay. So you go to get permission. That person's a, a pig. Okay, well, let's go back to the gatekeeper. Nope, he's a pig now. You know, one by one, this town is being destroyed. So then you go across the Twilight Path. This is the part of Chapter 4 that sucks, because the Twilight Path is, I think it's two trips this way, and then, like, another two trips this way, and then one trip this way. It's relatively long. It's several screens. Most of the enemies on this path are brutal. If you know what you're doing, you're fine. But every one of these are enemies that are specifically designed to have basically one trick... And if they get that one trick off, they wreck your face off. These include hypercleftas, by the way, if you know what that means. So, mean stuff. And you have to backtrack through it, I think, a total of three times in the the chapter. And that is the downside of Chapter 4, the backtracking. God, I I feel like I've said that already. Here's the thing, though. After you go through... So when you're playing this the first time, you go through this long and difficult track, and you get to this spooky, creepy-ass... you know, chapel, it's like, okay, and you go through this whole thing, and you finally ascend, and the overall tone, the music, it's very dark shading colors, and then you see Dupless, who has a little party hat, and a silly thing, and a silly tone, it's like, hey, slick, what's up, and instantly the mood is broken, then you fight Dupless, you defeat him, and the chapter's over. I will admit without shame that I left the game on for a very long time. In fact, I actually thought my game locked up the first time this happened. For those of you who have not played this game, and the off chance you've actually been listening to me for the last hour... God, have I been talking for an hour? Anyways, if you haven't actually been listening to me and you've not played this game, at this point in the game, Dupless walks off, the chapter end thing plays, and the the camera stays focused on Dupless's ghost, which is laying down there. And the moment you hit jump... The ghost jumps up, and that's you now. This is when the game starts really playing with you, because now you have to play as Mario who has lost his identity, as in the very concept of his identity. Even though Dupliss is running around in your body with your name and acting nothing like you, because he has magically claimed your name, everyone thinks he is actually Mario. This is when you can't leave. This is when I mentioned earlier, you're at your worst, and you go befriend Vivian, who is another shadow creature, actually. So that's appropriate. And there's a lot of great stuff it does. If if not for the backtracking, Chapter 4 would be brilliant. Because then you have to go through several other little sections, and you have to basically make your way back to town, figure out what's going on, recruit Vivian, make your way back to, the, to chapel. This is when that backtracking really comes in. Um, do another part of the chapel that you couldn't even reach before, you know, a whole new section of the dungeon in order to try and find out... Basically, you have to find a letter. Because Duplis has told you... Again, it's really playing with you. Duplis has told you, if you guess my name, I'll go ahead and help you out. But the P, I believe it is, is missing from the from the put insert his name thing. So even if you know his name, you literally can't put it in. You have to go get it from the dungeon, talk to him, be like, aha! Do another round of backtracking, and then actually finally fight Duplis for real, and then actually end the chapter. One of the things I want to say about Duplis is that he is a perfect subversion of what I was talking about earlier. Remember I mentioned all that thing about the tone, and the, the stress, and the tension, and the melancholy? All of that then pops the moment you meet Duplis, and he's just a joke. And then you beat him easily. He's an extremely easy fight. But then the tension comes back because this person has effortlessly subverted everything that you are and has trapped you in this place and you cannot escape. It's a, I love that because it's like, oh, he's just a joke. No, he's actually succeeded more than any of your villains have thus far. And it's only by several long shots that you have any kind of chance whatsoever against this guy. So you complete that. <clears throat> Dupless runs off, ends up joining the Shadow Sirens. Chapter 5, I wish I had more to say about. If I was doing a full analysis, I mean, I've already been talking for an hour, so I probably shouldn't go too much longer. If I was doing a full analysis, I'd love to just dig into Chapter 5. Because Chapter 5 is probably the perfect chapter, relatively speaking. It's got a huge intermission... This is another thing to, to note, by the way. Each chapter has an increasingly large intermission before you actually go and start the chapter proper. And those intermissions are gold. Like, they all have great stuff. They have... Uh, new stuff happening back in town. You know the shops have updated. Obviously, new story. You know side stories and troubles are happening. New side quests. Uh, Luigi has been continuing his story. It's awesome. I love it. I I want Lu- paper Luigi. I'm not getting about that. I don't even care if you make it the same freaking game as as his story about the Waffle Kingdom. Just give me paper Luigi. And then you know, and, and there's this recurring theme with Don Pianta, which I had a, a ball voice acting by the way. Um, <clears throat> and his criminal empire, and you trying to work through and with him. I'm not going to go in too much into the detail on that. It's, it's good stuff. Apparently they were supposed to be Yakuza in the original Japanese version. I kind of like the mafia tint better. It seems to fit the Piantas more. But anyways, I digress. So you get this huge intermission, and then you find out Flavio, which is another character I loved voice acting. And Flavio is one of those characters that should be more annoying than he is but ultimately is just a buffoon who is full of himself, but actually has real talent and knows when to put up or shut up. And it's rare that you see that kind of buffoonery type character who has those limitations on him. And he's actually very helpful uh, at one point in, in, in later on in the chapter when you're actually fighting with this mega-ghost death pirate. And, and almost every aspect of Chapter 5 is basically a better... How do I put this... Like, if you were to take the base model of the Paper Mario 1 chapters, you know, uh, town, dungeon, boss, right? It's that, but better. Like Like, they polished it into this completely new, like, rather than a square, it's a cathedral kind of a thing. I know that's a terrible analogy, but that's what it feels like, because... You have this long, wonderful intermission with lots of awesome stuff, great character moments, and genuinely heart-rending stuff. And then you get Bobbery, who's awesome. I already talked about him. You get Flavio, and you go on the ship, and then the ship sinks, but then you start over on the new island, and you've got to do some island stuff. But there's not too many enemies here, and the enemies use completely new types of tactics from what you fought normally. So you really have to change up your strategies, unless you've gotten a certain number of badges. Then you go into the underground area, which again has completely new type of enemies, which again use new, completely new strategies, and it's probably the most uh, platformy of all of the dungeons, with the possible exception of Chapter 7's dungeon. So you have to make your way through this very action-intensive dungeon, which is also relatively short, so it never overstays its welcome. And there's plenty of good story stuff there. And then you fight a boss who is, who is basically a completely non-standard boss compared to what we've fought so far. It's actually three bosses in a row, each of which has very low health and a lot of tricks to completely mess you up. And I love that. I love the way they do that. Then you beat him, and then you go fight Lord Crump again, which is awesome. Like I guess I don't have much else to say about uh, Chapter 5. And then there's Chapter 6, my other favorite chapter. Yeah, I like a lot of chapters in this game. What do you want from me? Three, four, five, and 6 are all awesome. Because Chapter 6 is the train chapter, and oh god, it's, go- it's gorgeous, it's wonderful. Chapter 6 has an absolutely gargantuan intermission before you get there. I think it's actually the biggest intermission by far, um, at least as far as mandatory intermissions. And then you go onto the train, and it's this, it's a luxury train. And then you spend the next hour or two or three on a train ride, getting to know the people interacting with them, fight. and it's, it's all character. It's hugely character focused, because each one, and I do mean 100% of the NPCs on that train have a name and a characterization and a little bit of a backstory that you can learn about them, or in some cases, a lot of backstory. Gold Bob is there. I mentioned him earlier. He's back. Um, Toodles, she was actually another recurring character. She's there as well. We find the the valley girl waitress who, you know, is totally into this, but I, it's, kinda, it's got some sentimental value and some junk for me, and I'm just gushing, forgive me. It's great stuff. It's absolutely great stuff. I love going through the chain section and learning about these people. It's basically one long town section in what would be a typical RPG, intermittently interrupted by a few small bits of puzzle solving. Then... You have a straightforward dungeon, which is actually quite boring. And most of the reason why is because this area was hit pretty hard with the development thing. There are several things that we've been able to data mine about additional uh, bosses or fights or bits of the dungeon or dialogue that were supposed to be at the train stop that aren't there. It has been theorized, and I agree with this theory, that that basically there's a whole chunk of that that's missing. And the main reason I say that is because in what is overall an extremely polished and well-designed chapter, in an extremely well-polished and well-designed game, this train station's just like, alright, here's a dungeon. It's got some good puzzles, don't mistake me, but it really is just dungeon. It, although it does have this very clever maze mechanic, which I actually like as well. But anyways, then you get to a town. And then you've got another town section after that. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed the boss fight, which literally just comes out of nowhere. There was supposed to be this whole thing about Beldum summoning it and blah, blah, blah. But anyways, so then you got the boss fight. That boss fight's pretty rough. It's probably one of the hardest mandatory boss fights uh, in the game, actually. Get to the new town, and we see for the first time in the game, the upper-crust society thing. Because it's a rich town. Everyone there is part of the rich, posh, you know, yes, yes, I think I will have to invest 7,000 coins into a new toothbrush, or, you know, whatever. That, that's pretty much the perspective there. And then we get to the Sanctum, we learn about Pennington's last... Thing. I, I wish I had more to say about Pennington, by the way. I love him as a character. All I'm going to say is the voice direction I gave to the gentleman who voiced him during the Lower Walker Theater. Pennington is someone who legitimately feels like he is a good uh, detective because he so ardently embraces that. He desires so much to be a detective that it doesn't even occur to him that he's crap at it. It doesn't even occur to him. It's not. This isn't an ego thing. It's a passion thing. He loves solving mysteries. He loves being the penguin with the improbably large brain. And he loves going through and and trying to deduce things. And of course he does. He's a curator at a museum with one object to it, and that's it. He probably lives a very, very boring life. So it makes sense that he would try to exude himself in such a manner, so extremely. But then we get to chapter 7. Now, I have to admit... Behind Chapter 2, which I discussed the problems and I could put away my notes, no, I really don't need this at this point. Behind Chapter 2, Chapter 7 is probably my least favorite. The first half of it, when you're doing the intermission, is long, but not in a good way. It's pure backtracking. Go to this place from Chapter 1, go to this place from Chapter 2, go to this place from Chapter 3, and yes, you have the warp pipes. It's probably worth noting that the warp pipes aren't very well advertised. Uh, I know several people who didn't even know the warp pipes were there until someone pointed it out to them. So several people just went back to these places the old-fashioned way. Even if you use the warp pipes, this is still kind of a slog to get to some of these areas. Then you go and face the Soviet Baboms, bo- who are definitely not hiding in these super weapons. And you get shot to the moon in a sequence that is silly and awesome. And I don't have much else to add about that. Once you get to the moon, which is awesome... Oh, by the way, this is when Gold Bob becomes a plot critical character... ...because he's the one who authorizes and gives the the, the keys or whatever to actively actually activating. This is a super weapon that is definitely not here. Um, you shot to the moon, and then the moon, we go through the x naught base. Now, I just want to say, the x naught base is a little bit disappointing... ...but it's well designed for what it is. There's some good puzzles there. But it's basically, if you were to look at the layout of it... ...you know, there's the four levels or whatever... And there's the central area, so each side area, with two exceptions, has a puzzle of some time. Either a platforming puzzle, or a, a memorization puzzle, or a like a, a reflexes puzzle, and I think that basically covers all of them. It's good stuff. It's still good Zelda dungeon design, but it is very short. Then you fight Lord Crump for the last time. He goes blasting off into space, you go down, and then begins chapter 8. Let me say that I love... Pretty much everything about the finale and build-up of this game. You go through the first of all. You meet Professor Frankly, who this is the this, this is actually kind of brilliant. It's actually dupless, but he does a very good job of hiding himself. He he actually only catches he basically only gives himself away in two very minor ways, both of which, unless you're paying attention, you probably missed your first time playing. He leads you in, and. You have this long, grueling, brutal dungeon with lots of Zelda-style dungeons, Zelda-style dungeoning, and lots of combat with very mean enemies. We also kind of learn as we're going through the Shadow uh, Temple, or excuse me, the Shadow Queen's Lair, a little bit more about the Shadow Queen herself. I'm only going to share one tidbit for you because I think this makes the point. She used to decorate her environs, her home with the bodies of the people who opposed her. Opposed, not supposed. Yes, really. Have I mentioned this is a dark game? There are actually corpses here and there throughout the entirety of the dungeon. And she keeps around a giant dragon, just in case you you have any issues there. And we hear about these tormented souls who have been literally kept around as signposts and just all sorts of really horrible crap. Then we fight Grotus. He's a pretty rough fight. And in fact, unless you're built very specifically for him, he will destroy you. Immediately after fighting Grotus, you fight Bowser and Cammy. Also, one of the best boss songs in like ever when you're fighting Bowser. I'm just saying. Then Grotus goes up and encounters the Shadow Queen. Revives the Shadow Queen, blah blah blah. She comes out. Now I want to take one moment to say one thing about the Shadow Queen. The Shadow Queen is considered one of the most evil characters in all of Mario. That may not sound like a big deal. But it puts her right up there with uh, Dementio and uh, Fawful is the other two who kind of occupy that top slot. Which one is more evil is going to be kind of a matter of opinion. In terms of scale, in terms of what they had accomplished, it probably goes to the Shadow Queen. From a more personal touch, it might go to Fawful. Either way, all three of them are really really, really horribly evil, unabashedly, nightmarishly evil people. From my own villains list, uh, Shadow Queen is a classic Type 4 villain. She likes killing and torturing people, and she likes people submitting to her. And if they don't, then she'll kill and torture them. I mean, there's there's no apology there. She, this is something that she enjoys doing. And I want to mention one other moment. I mentioned this game has a nice plot. Well, it actually has a two-layer plot. Um, most of the plot of the game is about finding these crystal stars. And crystal stars, you know, it's it's like finding the crystals in Paper Mario, right? And it's always stars in a Mario game, so these are some kind of thing, right? These are actually tools the Shadow Queen herself crafted, specifically to, to act as uh, magnifiers for her power that is literally what they do they act as magnifiers for power they are neutral objects so we can use them and we do use them to empower ourselves and that's how we you know do a lot of the things we do throughout the game but the sh- literally the, the the point i'm trying to make here is that if we brought these things to the shadow queen as we do and then lost that's it for the world and the game makes it very clear if you do the non-standard game over any the other things the world is completely screwed, and no one makes it out. It's just everyone is cast into darkness forever. The end. And it's messed up. The um, The other thing I want to mention... Uh, actually, actually, there's two more things I want to mention. Throughout almost the entire point of the game, they're all talking about this great treasure or this great whatever, nobody actually knows what's behind the Thousand-Year Door. There's a scene where Tech... Is, I think, I believe this is chapter four. I'm looking at it. Yeah, it looks like it's right after chapter four in the Princess Peach section where Tech is giving a quiz to Princess Peach. And he says, question, you know, what, what, sorry, I won't do my tech voice. What is it you think is behind the thousand year door? And then if you answer the soul of a thousand year old demon, he just says, correct. That is the first time we learn that there is something horrible and evil beyond that door. And that that is the goal of Grotus and his ex-naughts. And that this is a lot more serious and a lot more deadly of a situation than we thought it was. Because up until then, it was basically just a kind of a romp, adventure, treasure hunt kind of a thing. But what I love most about that scene is how nonchalant it is. It's like if you were just walking along and casually talking and then someone just drops a bomb right on you. Verbally, I mean. Just... Because that's how it approaches it. And I remember my first time just getting chills. Like, I don't know, yep, okay. A thousand-year-old... Wait, what? And it's so casual about it. I love the way they do that. The third thing I want to talk about is the old heroes. There was the, uh, let's see, it's the Scarred, Shelled Koopa, and the Boo, and the Goomba. I feel like there was another one. It's There's an old series of heroes. We don't actually know their names. They banded together and fought against the Shadow Queen and used the crystals to seal her away. They're the, one, they're the reasons she's sealed behind like 50 different layers of defenses. But as they, were being, as they had succeeded, the Shadow Queen cursed them so that as soon as they no longer had the empowering power of the stars keeping them going, they would revert to a certain form, a black chest, which they would be then trapped within. This is one of those wonderful things that I love that Paper Mario 2 does. Because as you go throughout the game, you see these black chests. And they're like, I will horribly curse you. And then they give you some power-up. And you're like, oh, okay. And you think that's it. That's the joke that they're trying to do. (laughs) I will secretly make you awesome kind of a thing. The subversion is the fact that that is the heroes of the previous adventure. the, The thing that happened when they last. That's them in those black chests that's what became of them and what they are doing is in their limited cursed form trying to subvert their programming if you will in order to try and find a way to still help you in your adventure that's why they go through all the oh, 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 evil the definite curse thing rather than just trying to help you because they have to and if you and there, there's, there's I'm not going to go too much into detail on that. I will whenever we do the pseudo-lore run. But all I just want to say is that I love that little, I guess, double subversion of the way they do the black chest monsters. And I really hope they had some kind of happy ending after being released from those chests because otherwise that's really, really horrible. So then you fight the Shadow Queen and she curb stomps you. She is actually an unwinnable boss fight. It's not until the stars are empowered by everyone you've met in all the chapters and yourself to give you just enough of a power to actually be physically capable of hurting her, which is something you weren't capable of doing before. And then she loses her cool, and understandably so. She was just let out, and now she's being damaged? Well, the last time that happened, she was sealed away. But this time we don't seal her away, we frickin' kill her. Because she is incredibly evil and she needs to die. Everything about her is just nightmarish, by the way. I love her visual design. I love the, the evil peach that she uses as her vessel. I love the fact that she attacks you with hundreds of, hundreds of angry little hands that just kind of crawl up for the floor and wriggle at you. It's all wonderfully horrifying. Uh, the entire presentation. And of course, a massively awesome last boss song. And, she is insane. Like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, She's, she is hard. Now, there are, of course, tricks you can do. It's pretty easy to use the badge system, if you know what you're doing, to either get duplicate badges or to set yourself up to wreck things. But if you're not abusing the badge system, even if you're very high level, she is rough. She is a very difficult boss fight. And that's appropriate. She should be that horrible. So you fight this amazing fight. And it's just incredible and she goes away and you save Peach with the power of the stars and Then frankly comes in with a chest which it turns out has a dried shroom. You find out later and then the ending rolls and the endings amazing Then the game does something very wrong and very right let's talk about the wrong thing first <sighs> I Almost feel like this was Miyamoto's influence I-, I know that's my bias talking so I apologize, but I almost feel like someone just says there has to be a happy ending because Tech died during the course of the story. But in the ending, Tech's fine. On the moon base that self-destructed. Also, Beldum is fine. Grotus is still alive. Along with Lord Crump, who I remind you was literally shot out into space. <sighs> what? And I really feel like that was a massive misstep. In fact, for anybody who watched the La Walker Theater, and I encourage you to do so, we put a lot of effort into that, you'll notice that I edited the ending a bit to get rid of those aspects of it, so that Tech dies, Lord Crump dies, Grotus dies, and they actually stay dead, rather than just, hey, we're back, we're hanging out in Posh Sanctum for some reason. But then the game does something very, very right. It lets you keep playing. Paper Mario 2 has an honest-to-god post-game. And not just you can keep doing all the side quests and the lore stuff and the optional challenges that you already hadn't done. New additional stuff opens up after you've beaten the game. And it allows you to go through and make a 100% save. And that's awesome! And I love that. The only thing that would make it even better is if it had New Game Plus. Man, I have talked way too much about this game. I hope you'll forgive me for this. I love this game. Thank you very much for the chance to talk about it. I will be seeing you guys next time.